Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So my talk today, uh, as it's been titled by the program, is Treasuring Our Present, but I've added a tagline, which is Shedding Light Through Candid Conversations. And I will tell you, I um, cut my teeth in university life, mostly as an administrator in university life, some when I was a student, but I was kind of on the wave of being a student, just kind of following the path of many students that went to Georgetown University. Kind of you get in and the factory kind of churns you out as a Georgetown grad. And I would tell you that I was a leader on campus, but I didn't take a kind of a look at how I showed up as a leader on campus. Um, and I, don't tell, I can't honestly say that I was necessarily nurtured as a leader on campus. I think what I brought to the table was my leadership affiliation or my leadership skill or my sensitivity to leadership. But it wasn't until I was responsible for students that I really got a sense of how important the leadership role in an academic environment is. And I want to tell you a quick story. Because I'm showing you right now kind of what a typical dorm room door looked like when I worked in university life. There was usually decorations on it. It usually had a number on it. And there was something that identified the personality, usually, of the residents behind those doors. And it just so happens, before the school year even started, the first time um, that I was working in this university environment, it was during kind of the orientation week. And the reason why I tell this story is I, I really believe that I failed in my leadership responsibility, kind of in my first opportunity. And let me just tell you what I really believe leaders do well, and I'll tell you why I didn't think I did that well in my first opportunity when I encountered a door like this that I knew I had an opportunity to show up and I didn't show up. So here's what I think leaders do really well. My belief, uh, and Sister uh, Johanna, I loved her talk. I don't know if she's still here. I loved her talk. I like primarily that she talked about superheroes and the X-Men. Um, <laughs> and how those people showed up as flawed characters. So I, feel I don't feel badly about being a flawed character in this story. But I really believe in looking at all those leaders and saints and people that she talked are people that we kind of admire. They do th something very, very well. I'm going to tell you those three things, what I believe they do right now very, very well. The first thing that they do really well is they notice what's going on. And what I mean by noticing what's going on, they are constantly scanning, consciously or unconsciously, places where things are going well and things need intervention. You know, uh, Sister Johanna used the, the um, Avengers as her kind of favorite group of superheroes. You know, I know Spider-Man is not necessarily a, a quote-unquote Avenger, but he made his appearance in Civil War kind of for the first time, the new Spider-Man, you know that. Mm -hmm. But I call this the spidey sense of a leader, right? Sometimes it has nothing to do with what people say. It's just understanding that I'm scanning the environment and I notice something needs to be done. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's not. How many people can relate in this room that you have that spidey sense going as a leader or somebody that's responsible for other people? Just raise your hand. See, I see a lot of hands raised right now. The second thing I think they do really well, not only do they notice it, 
But they understand that their role in leadership is to make a decision very quickly when they notice something amiss or when they notice that there's an opportunity. And so that opportunity usually presents itself with a decision. Do I intervene and do something or do I not do something? Would you agree that I notice something, but I may have a role in that, yes, or my role may be just be to sit back and be an observer, or I fear it and I don't do anything about it. And then finally, the third thing is that they act, that they take action. And sometimes this process is almost instantaneous and really good leaders see what it's missing, make the decision and act almost like it's in the blink of an eye. And sometimes they think about it, contemplate it. It doesn't require immediate action, but it normally follows those three steps. And so what I wanna to talk to you about today is this idea of when I decide to act, how can I have a bigger or more productive impact when I decide to act and open up a conversation that may not be easy. And a lot of that requires me to have very difficult or candid conversations, which many times we shy away from, or we handle a bit too assertively or aggressively. I call those extremes bruising or bailing, right? We bail on conversations that we should have, or we bruise people in those conversations we have. And what I want to talk to you about today is when I decide to have that conversation with somebody that's not easy, that I know can help them, that isn't comfortable for me and may not be comfortable for the other person, how do I do it so that I don't bruise them and I also can't be accused of bailing out? Does this make sense? How many people say in this room would say that would be a valuable thing to me to focus on, at least for a short portion of today? That some of you, okay, that's great. It's unanimous, great, we'll continue. Before I do that, can I ask you to do one thing? I'll tell you that story in just a moment, but I haven't had you done, do this already. Can I just have you, because you haven't had a chance to do this, I know it, can I just have you turn to the person to your left and right and just tell them, I haven't told you yet, but I'm really privileged to be sitting next to you during this session. Do that right now. Here's the other thing. So now that you've lied to one, no. Um, so, <laughs> you're like, I know you are. I'm not so. Um, so uh, what I'd like you to do, before I tell you the story, I do think this idea of cumulative benefit of these types of programs, right, are so important because you're being, so much information is being fired at you in a compressed amount of time. It's like taking a semester and putting it into like a day of information. Before I go on to the rest of my talk, now that you've greeted each other, I would like you to pick one person or two people next to you just to make sure that you're taking something from Sister Johanna's talk and not letting it go. And so before I start to fill your brain and fill your buckets with more information, can I just ask you to do that? Take a moment and just think about who was a saint that now still you still remember. Like for me, understanding St. Bonaventure was washing dishes when he was actually approached with the invitation or the actual mandate to become a cardinal. I never knew that. And that he said, hang that in the tree. I'll get to that when I get to it. That's pretty amazing in terms of humility and what he actually saw as most important in his vocation. I'd love you to do that right now, which is somebody, and if you haven't written it down, take a moment to write it down in terms of what was most powerful that you want to hold on to from Sister Johanna's talk. Take a moment to please do that. So anybody want to let me know what you took away from Sister Johanna's talk? I'd love to hear. Yes, please. That saints can particularly 
not always be perfect. They can have their flaws. And having my issues where I have a severe inferiority complex, it's a nice idea thinking that maybe, God's willing, I could be a saint someday because I want to leave other people. Yeah, that's, well, first of all, I thank you for being so ca candid about that. Um, but I also think it's wonderful and refreshing that I don't have to be perfect, right? Uh, I know that I am not, and I still aspire to be a saint or at least get to heaven at some point, right? Yeah. Good, thank you very much for saying that. Yeah, another. Um, she talked about using technology as a means for spreading the gospel, but I know I border on the, well, I fall into not using it at all. Yep. Yeah. It's great. So maybe opening your minds to at least inserting it some way to make it productive or at least test it out and see if there is a healthy balance. Great in terms of technology. Yes, please. Fifty-six times, fifty some odd times. Amazing. Amazing, yeah. You're going to say something. I thought I saw your hand. Oh, yeah, I really enjoyed the personal interaction that she talked about. Like, I mean, they were talking about the technology, which is good in itself, but I like how she focused on the how we need to interact with those right in front of us. Like, especially, she gave an example just for us students, like those who clean up for us in the calf. I yeah. mean, they're doing a job, and we need to recognize that. Yeah. Do we, do we take note of that? You know, I, I relate to that very much when she said that, not only this idea of making sure that you kind of acknowledge the people that sometimes you are invisible to us, that are kind of serving a role that we don't necessarily appreciate, but this whole idea of being able to connect with people. You know, I have so much technology. I mean, I have two microphones. I have a, I have a laptop that's connected to this presentation. And I'm always very tempted to be fixated on that technology when I'm up in front of the room and avoid making contact with the people in the front row. Like, I know that I introduced myself, but I, that was a decision that I made uh, to, to create connection rather than connect with my technology. And that has to be a conscious choice. And I can tell you, sometimes it's a decision because I don't want this stuff to screw up in front of an audience. The other is sometimes it's an excuse because it's hard sometimes to break the ice with somebody that I don't know. So I think we hide behind technology. So I have to obviously find the proper balance. So thank you for doing that. Let me get back into my story. So I told you about this idea that leaders do three things, right? They first notice, notice right? The second thing they do is? Decide, and the third thing they do is act. So here was an opportunity for me to um, notice something that was pretty much in my face, uh, decide to do something, which I should have done something, and then act, which I didn't do. And so behind this door, there lived a young man named David. He lived with a roommate. He hadn't arrived on campus yet. It was still kind of the beginnings of freshman orientation. David was an athlete, and um, he was also the son of a colleague of mine who was a pretty well-known professor on campus. And so there was always this feeling when I started to recognize that, that you know, I needed to treat this son of this professor with just professional respect. But it was almost two or three days before school started that I just by chance, I'm wandering the halls as I'm going from one appointment to another, kind of learn the campus, learn this life that I was now involved in. And I passed by his door and literally I am completely blown away by the smell of marijuana. And I know what the smell of marijuana is, it's that I wasn't exposed to that in college or before college, so I know what it was and it was strong. And, I'm, and I said to myself, you know, could be him, could be in the stairway, 
which the door to the stair was right next, could be another door. But I got closer and you know, he had images like this with somebody smoking on the front of his door and maybe a Bob Marley sign. It wasn't something that was pretty, uh, I could draw one conclusion by a couple of other things. But in my mind, I was saying to myself, that ah, can't be, right? Can't be, can't be, can't be. And the awkwardness of approaching a student, a son of one of my colleagues was all even more awkward. But I ended up getting down on my knees and actually smelling underneath the door. And it was coming from this room. And so I had an opportunity to act. I also had an opportunity to decide. And what I decided to do was, let me let it go. Let me not do anything. Let me just walk away from this. No one's seeing me. No one saw me. I didn't knock any of the doors. Most of the kids are out doing something. So let me just walk away. And so that decision was calculated. It happened in a couple of moments. I'll tell you, my heartbeat was you know, racing faster and faster and faster. Because one, it was an awkward conversation. One, it was, two, it was difficult. I'd never done that before. Never busted anybody for drugs. So I walked away from it. And so I thought I could leave it, but I registered in my head. Two weeks later, Fire alarm goes off in my room, which the fire alarm was above my bed. So when it went off, I knew it was going off. Woke me up out of a, a sound sleep. And I'm, uh, for some reason, the fire alarm, I don't know why it's ringing, but I go respond to the fire alarm. And as I'm going out of my room, I see a trail of blood that I've never ever seen before that much quantity of blood. I look into the hallway next to me and I see a smashed window. And I look and I see all of this blood trailing from the window all the way to the men's room. And there is a lot of it. And so I run into the men's room looking and David is lying under one of those sinks with his hand completely broken, sliced up, and he is literally bleeding to death. He had stuck his hand through a window, two o'clock in the morning, severed practically his vein in his right arm, and thankfully, I was up at that point. I don't know why the fire alarms were ringing. It had nothing to do with this incident, but I found David almost dying right there. He was stoned out of his mind, had been drinking quite a lot as well, and my immediate reaction was to act, which thankfully I did. Called 911, called security, and thank the Lord, we were able to get him assistance immediately that we were able to stop the bleeding and get him into a place that he needed help. And the reason why I will never ever forget that story is my choice not to act in a very critical moment where I had an impact, had almost had a life altering or life ending impact on David. And what I wanna tell you is that not every conversation or interaction that you will have or have had necessarily ends in that type of disastrous conclusion, but there are times when you opt to bail that you are not helping anybody. And so every time I act as a leader, my intention is always to do it in the service of others and make sure that I'm doing everything that God gave me to act in that service. Does this make sense? So I will tell you that um, I have learned a lot from that experience and what I wanna do is help audiences show up as leaders, not when it's so grave, but also just to make connections with people. Just to let you know, here are the conversations that I think we sometimes shy away from. That was a pretty grave one that I would have had to do. But let me just tell you, if you look at this list, enforcing rules or policies, delivering tough news, giving constructive feedback, mediating conflicts, challenging others on their decisions, handling complaints, requesting help, confronting others. Tell me if there's at least one on that list that makes you uncomfortable. 
And can I have you just turn to the person next to you, same person you just talked to, can I just have you identify which one it is that you would say makes you most uncomfortable? So at least you're identifying one. Um, I will tell you in my life, some of the most difficult conversations I have with this group of people, uh, just to let you know, or the ones that I know, and the reason why I put this up there is helpful for you to know a little bit about my background. Obviously, Clarissa told you, but another part of my background is also showing up as a leader in my life. Although my wife is the leader of our household, she's my CEO, and uh, those are all of her direct reports. We have uh, five beautiful boys, 11, 9, 7, 5, 3, and we just had our first girl, so five boys, and we just had our first girl back in July of last year. And so one of the things that I will tell you is my real motivation is that um, the way that I act as a leader and want to bring my children up as a leader is for them to not shy away from those types of conversations, particularly when it comes to having those conversations with me. One of the most difficult conversations that I ever had with my father and mother was there uh, in, about their inability to accept my wife Libby, who you see up there and is absolutely a saint, but when we were dating, they did not think that she was the right person for me. And I knew I wanted to marry Libby from the beginning moment that I met her. And their resistance or their inability to see the same things that I saw in her created a tremendous amount of st uh, stress in my life. I love my parents dearly, I respect them dearly. This is kind of the way life pans out and we have a wonderful relationship now. My kids live less than a half a mile away from them and Libby is one of their obviously dearest family members now. One of the most difficult things that I ever had to do in my life was have a conversation with my parents that I am decidedly going to marry this woman and that I need to talk to them about how are they gonna embrace her in my life. And so these things that I'm gonna to talk to you about right now, about this idea of noticing, deciding, and acting, does not just have to do with busting people with marijuana or seeing if someone has an eating disorder in your, in your residence hall. These are all important things, but they're also important in your personal life. So I wanna to talk to you about uh, basic premises that I believe. Somebody read that first one for me out loud. Go ahead, please. Yeah, so leading others does, is not silent. Yes, I can be a silent leader, but a lot of it has to do with how I engage with people in conversations. That's the first one. What's the second one? Somebody read it for me. Somebody else. Yes. Not every conversation can change someone's life, but any conversation can. Yeah, and I really believe that. You know, like, I can have conversations with people that are small talk. I had a really nice conversation with Adam. Adam, where are you in the room right now? Adam, uh, about his life here, his brother who graduated or is in the process of getting his degree but started here at Steubenville, talking about the leadership. And I will tell you that that may not have been a life-altering conversation for him, but one thing that I know when I think about what types of schools I want my kids to be exposed to, that conversation, I will tell you, was very motivating to make my kids exposed to Steubenville in the future. <laughs> Thank you. That's not the only thing. There are a lot of things. But I will tell you, that conversation, as short as it was, had the potential to change my children's life just with that. And as leaders, we have to embrace that. I have to be willing at any moment to be able to engage in something like that. Have anybody ever been through a conversation where you change your life through one interaction? Just raise your hand. Obviously, I should see every single hand in here. So what I want to talk to you about is, well, how do I make these more difficult or challenging conversations that don't come easily easier? And then, how do I make sure that when I'm noticing the impact of it, that I make the decision to take it on and not bruise people or bail from the process? So, a couple of things I think you should know. I'm a big fan of the key piece is this idea of preparation. 
All right, and so I'm gonna to talk to you about three things in this session. One is the idea of preparation. The second thing is this idea of how I execute those types of conversations. And the third is how do I deal sometimes with the defensiveness that comes out of it? All right, and I wanna try and give you some tips and techniques on that. So let's talk about preparation. So I really believe if I'm gonna do a, have a conversation, and here's the definition of what I really believe a conversation is. Somebody take a gander. Would somebody read this definition for me out loud? Yes, please, in the back. Nice and loud? Great, thank you for doing that. Can I get a round of applause for the three people that have read? Their reading skills are really good. Says a lot for Steubenville, it's great. Um, so if you identified something on that list, what would it be in that definition that you'd say is critical that I have to make sure that I take with me? Mutual understanding. Mutual understanding, why is that important? Yeah, there has to be this idea of what I'm saying is being received in the right way by the right people and they're doing the right things with it and I'm also open to what they have to say in, re in response. What I love to talk about, and I want you to remember this, is that in conversations there have to be one microphone. So there's one microphone, but I have to give time for the other person to hold it. You know, as you can tell, my style in front of the room is not to hold the microphone the entire time. You know, I've been speaking maybe for about 15 or 20 minutes now. You guys have talked to one another already. I've asked you to engage in the conversation. I believe we're more bought in when you guys hold the microphone a bit. This makes sense. So that's the first thing. So how do I exchange the microphone? Anything else on this definition you say you aspire to? Yeah? Moving towards a goal. Like, if I'm going to spend the time to make a decision to have a meaningful type of interaction, how do I get to a place that we're a better place afterwards? Anything else? Yes? I have to maintain relationships. You know, how many of you are an RA or a leadership role where your um, fellow uh, classmates are in the same living, or living uh, uh, situation as you are? Meaning seniors are actually with seniors, seniors are, or juniors are with juniors. A lot of you, right? I still want to be friends with these people. I still want to cultivate relationships. I don't want to be coming across as the dictator. So how do I do that? So here are a couple of things that I really believe are kind of five essential things when it comes to really having those critical conversations. The first is prayer. And you know this. But any time that I'm about to have a very difficult conversation or a conversation that I know is possibly going to get into conflict with somebody, my first prayer is to the Holy Spirit. And the first prayer that I say to the Holy Spirit is, please, Holy Spirit, make, do three things for me in this conversation if you can. Number one is, make me show up authentic. That this is in the service of someone else. That this is not about me only. The second is, please let me be truthful. So if something comes up where I have a choice to tell the truth or hold back on that truth, give me strength to be truthful. And then the third is that that person is open to the message as well. And so that prayer takes such a short amount of time, but it puts me into the right mindset. That's the first thing I do. The second thing is, what's my purpose? And I will tell you, the big thing with the purpose is, is this in the service of other person, or is it me to pull rank on somebody? That's the second thing. 
The third is, do I have proof? And I'll talk about proof in just a couple of moments, but proof is important. Because is this noticing based on something factual or based on something that has some merit? Sometimes we just have instincts about people that we go at it and they're not really based on fact, they're based on our judgmental like concupiscence that we stick towards because we are human beings and we are flawed. It could be an ego thing. It could be something that I'm not willing to like let that person go on. Or I have already made a perception of that person and I'm now trying to fit everything into this perception. I'm not open to other facts. Do I have proof? Next, do I need a partner? See, when I called, when I saw that blood was in the hallway, going into the bathroom and I called security, I realized I needed a partner to go into this conversation or interaction with. I wasn't handling it alone. Now, in my life, I have a wonderful partner. Libby is my amazing partner. I bounce a lot of things off Libby. I was on the phone with Libby eight o'clock this morning talking about my talk today. Now, sometimes I needed a partner just to bounce it off and get a reality check. Sometimes I needed a partner to be with me side by side because I need a witness or I need somebody to kind of give me strength or watch me in action. And then finally, do I know how to preview this conversation so that right from the start, we are not gonna create a tremendous amount of conflict. And what I mean by previewing is what are the words that I will choose to say that allow me to be honest, allow to be candid, and allow this person to be open to hearing my perspective. Those are the things that I do in advance, if I have the time to think about them. If I don't have the time, I just really focus on two, prayer and my purpose. Can I have you turn to the same, or actually, if you turn to your left before, turn to your right. If you turn to your right before, turn to your left. Can I just ask you, on this list, what is the one that you most rigorously do, and what's one that you sometimes leave to chance when you're in that situation where you know you're gonna be engaging in some type of conflict or confrontation or difficult exchange? Please do that right now. Left or right, if you turn to your left before, turn to your right. If you turn to your right before, turn to your left. If I'm going to do that effectively, I have some things to be mindful of. Can I just ask you, of those P's, which one jumps out as kind of the one that just shouts some out, that you say, I need to be more vigilant or diligent about when it comes to the way that I take them on? Purpose. Prayer. Another one? Purpose. Purpose. What else? Proof. 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 So you got them all. Anybody that you missed? Partner. Right? Yeah. You made it a partner, or P stands for police, depending on which one's your, how grave the situation is. But I'll tell you, that's a big one. What happens after I've made that decision, let me just tell you, my purpose really in most conversation is to do two things. One is to build trust and relationship. That's my purpose. I wanna foster or make this relationship better, or do what I can to at least cultivate and maintain what is already a relationship. And then the second is take action in a positive direction. So if there's any purpose that I narrow it down to is, how can I keep it balanced between those two things? That's usually my purpose. How do I make that real for somebody that we don't hate each other after this conversation and we're still able to get from square one here to another square that we want to get to? Make sense? All right, so if I do that, that's my choice. A lot of times, as I said, we tend to veer to one side or the other. We tend to bail or we tend to bruise. And my intention here is to get you to think about, well, how do I be direct, clear, respectful, and objective? Those are the things that I strive for. I wanna avoid those fringes. So if I do that, here's some of the ways that I might start those conversations. So I notice with a colleague, that person is 
not necessarily on the same page as me. And what I mean by that is they may disagree openly with how they work with me. Or they may do things that are not my style that I think may have, because I've had more experience as an RA or a household head or a student leader, that they may be younger than me and not as mature or not as effective. And they're doing things that are either stepping on the toes of what I'm doing or they're just not in sync with our philosophy of how we work with people. One way that I may open that conversation is, you know what, um, what's your first name? Rachel. Rachel, um, you have a moment. I'd love to talk to you about something. And it's really about something that I think ultimately would help us work more effectively together. Would you be open to that? It's great. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Come on up here, I wanna talk, no. Um, <laughs> so I believe all of these ways can be ways of making sure that I'm preparing for a message that this person is gonna be more open to right from the start. So when I talk about preview, here are some examples. I need your help with something and I'd like to discuss that with you now. Or I need your help with something and could we grab coffee this afternoon after the session is over because I'd love to talk to you about it. See, that's not being insincere, but it's also not gloom and doom, right? This is all about the intention of making this conversation better. It's helpful to see some examples. Here's a, here's a clip that I love to show in terms of prepping your approach. This is from Back to the Future. Anybody ever seen the movie Black Back to the Future? That is so, amazing. That's amazing. So, <laughs> there we go. So prepping your approach, this is actually uh, Marty McFly um, prepping his approach with uh, Michael J. Fox. Um, or George, actually. It's George McFly prepping his, his approach with Marty McFly before he goes and asks his uh, future wife out. See how much that preparation helped him? <laughs> So, so that's getting a partner or pal to work with you and getting your preview just perfectly on track, right? Even take notes with you. But I, do, I don't want to show that and under, um, undermine this idea of preparation. Once I've prepared, though, I really believe there's uh, four key steps to making sure that you have really strong conversations. And I use an acronym for that. That acronym that I use is SHED. And what I mean by shed is shedding light into conversations so that I can be authentic, as I said earlier, as I can be truthful, as I said earlier, and I can make someone be open to the message that I give them. And that really step-by-step -step process is this idea of, one, stating facts. Why do you think stating facts is so critical? Like, if I'm going to begin a conversation and say, you have a moment to talk, I'd love to talk about something that I think really could help our relationship or the way that you work with students or the way that you live here, why would that be so helpful? Because to lead with facts. Because if one doesn't know what you need to talk about, you need to clarify what you are discussing. Yeah. So those facts help to bring clarity. What else do facts do? They also kind of take what you're hearing. Because I know one of the scariest things that I can ever hear is, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Right. And then they don't tell you anything. Right, exactly. Know. There's no background, no context, no nothing. What am I supposed to react to? And immediately I start to think it's negative. bad news or negative. Yes. Facts also are sort of like a logo. It's like logic and it makes sense and the person can sense what's happening. And at the same time, a logo is a form of rhetoric where you are using logic and they know that you know what is to be yeah. discussed. The, the thing is, people's minds are more open, their hearts are more open when something is of truth or at least represents logic. Great, anything else? Yes. Yes. It gets it out of here and does something that the video camera would pick up. Yes. Puts common ground in the place. I can react to that, so can the other person. Yes. So basically, when someone says, can I talk to you 
ground costs on it? Well, I I know the rate of every person like you're an RA, RV, the higher the rates you are, the more, uh, let's say I get a little nervous because it's like, if you were uh, my superior, there's any number of things that you could do, such as expel me from the school. Right. Discipline me. Yes. Anything. And if I don't know what the situation is, you know what humans do? They think the worst. They think the worst. Absolutely. Yeah. So immediately their minds will fast forward to something where they are going to be bruised by this. And so when I talk about facts, I just want to help you understand this a little bit more. Some of you got this. I think it's something that I just want to reinforce. Because if I understand the facts, then I have to immediately hand the microphone over to somebody and hear what they have to say about those facts. Then afterwards, we evaluate what the impact of what we're talking about here is. And then finally, we determine what next steps are that's appropriate. So let me share with you, as to get into this idea of facts, I'm just going to do a quick exercise with you. So um, I am going to actually uh, go into that room right there. And what I'm going to do is I want you to imagine as an audience, I was supposed to start this talk, let's say, at 10.45. And it's now almost 11. So I'm going to go into the room right there. I want you to imagine that it's not a kitchen. All right, just for, the, just for the sake of the demonstration, I want you to imagine that it's the entrance actually to this, to this room or this theater right now or this, this auditorium. And all I want you to do is watch me. All right, when I'm done, I'm gonna ask you what you saw. All right, so I'll do some acting for a few moments and then I'll stop. I'll tell you when the acting is over. When I come out of that door, that's when the acting begins. And it's acting, okay? It's not real. All right, so here it is. Oh gosh, are you kidding me? How long have you guys been here? 15 minutes? They said that this wasn't starting until 11.15. They have an agenda here? It's not what I was told. It does say here, 10.45, but that's not what I got. All right, um, shoot. This is wrong. This stuff makes no sense. Um, that's not my presentation either. So uh, this is embarrassing. Uh, it's not the first time that it's happened here. So I just want to. Here's what I'll ask you to do. Can I just have you turn to the person next to you and just like introduce yourselves and whatever you do here at Subaville? All right, I'm gonna call time. All right, I even told you I was doing acting. I just stopped the acting. I don't even get any applause from anybody that wasn't really good acting. I gotta beg for it. Thank goodness I only have 15 minutes left. No, all right, so, um, so I left the room, came back in, did some acting, and I stopped. Can you tell me what you saw? Yes. Good. Yes? You are bailing. You sound like me when I have my disability without medication. Okay. <laughs> but definitely bailing. Good. Yes, please. Yes? What's that? Nervous. Nervous. Yeah. Yeah, you seem unprepared. Somebody else, yes? You were upset and you didn't develop a problem. 
You sound like my psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I may pay you after this. This. Yes. Go ahead. Okay. Good. One more. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to stop there. Just do a quick pause. So let's just rewind the tape. And here's what I want to tell you. In working with the hundreds and hundreds of people that I work for, this is an exercise that I work with, this is an exercise that I have done, and maybe hundreds, thousands at this point. And this is one thing that I think smart people get wrong very frequently. And you are all smart people, and the people that I work with outside of Steubenville are very smart people. But I left this room a moment ago, came back in the room, did some acting to which you did not applaud, but I'll forget it probably by three o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> and then I asked you what you saw, and you started to give me a list of things, and I captured them on this list in the right-hand column. But I will challenge you and tell you that is not what you saw. It is not. What is that stuff on that right-hand column? What is it? Acting. Well, you saw acting, but what is that stuff in the right-hand column? Those are impressions you had of me. Give me some other words that you would say or describe those things in the right-hand column. Those are perceptions that you had of me. Any other things? Yes. They're judgments that you made of me. They're assumptions that you made. And so what I will tell you is, we see this idea of the first piece being share the facts, explain the facts. Those weren't facts. And in fact, the question that I asked you is, what did you see? And what you just gave me was a list of judgments. When I want to start a conversation with somebody, I have to be really clear to stay out of this right column. Why? Because if I'm holding you accountable for something, what might that right column do to you if you're the person that I'm directing this attention to? Make you defensive. See, as soon as you say to me, Stephen, you seemed unprepared, my reaction could be, you're crazy. I have spent the last three weeks working on this presentation. I was not unprepared. They gave me the wrong information. And you say, you seemed unprepared. And I say, no, I wasn't. And you say, yes, you were. And I say, no, I wasn't. And now you say, yes, you were. And all of a sudden, that's a really productive conversation. Like, I have that conversation with my three-year-old. You can't have another cookie. Why not? Because I said, no, you, no, but I can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Go to your room. I can't do that a lot of times in this environment. So can we just rewind the tape? This is not, can we agree that you did not see that? Those are judgments that you made. Give me the left column stuff. So here's what I want you to tell me. What did you see me do? Yes. I wore a suit jacket. Great. Something else. Yes. Okay, so late is judgmental. What, how, how long? 15 minutes late or 15 minutes after the appointed start time. What else? You checked your materials. Okay. I checked my materials. Specifically, I looked at the handout and the PowerPoint presentation. Yes? So you were responding to an unexpected change in schedule. I don't know if that's very behavioral. That might have been, yeah? Deer in the headlights. That's, uh, that's on this side. Deer in headlights would be on this side. What'd you see? I gave you instructions and said, please talk to 
your partner. What else? Yeah. I, what did I say? I actually didn't apologize. What did I do? This isn't the first time this has happened here. What else? Still tried to adapt. I put that here. I looked at my. That's behavioral. That's a fact. They're videotaping me in the back. They can tell you that I did that. <laughs> Something else? Yes? That may be somewhat inferential, okay. right? So can I, there's a difference between these two columns, yes? Okay. See, if I lead with the stuff in the left column, what does that start to give me? It makes me credible. It allows somebody to respond to something objectively. Here's the difference between the two columns if you look. Folks, the, two, the difference here is the left side are facts, they're objective, they're measurable, they're observable, and they're specific. The right side, they're opinions, they're evaluative, assume motivational factors, judgmental or imagined. So imagine, right? I see this individual, it's a, this person is a freshman, right, in the dorms, and I'm noticing over a couple of three or four months that they do not seem to like it here at Steubenville. And I go up to them and say, you know, I just get the impression that you don't like it here. What, how might that person feel if I just led with that? Particularly if it's not true. What? Misunderstood, or? Judged in a negative fashion. Judged negatively. How else? Now they have to defend themselves. What I'd like you to do right now with your partner is, I just told you that you have an inkling that somebody, see you're noticing your spidey sense, we talked about spidey sense, you're noticing that somebody in the first two weeks is not adjusting well to Steubenville. Freshman in your residence, a, a, a fellow classmate, whatever it might be in terms of your interaction, can I just have you turn to your partner and say, what could be some factual evidence that I see from somebody that I could lead this conversation with? Take a moment just to, Discuss what would be some factual evidence that I could lead the conversation with as opposed to saying to that person, I don't think you like it here. Or I don't think you, I think you're having a difficult time. Take a moment to please do that. What would be some factual evidence? <laughs> Let me just hear some examples. So you have this inkling, you have this spidey sense that this person is not adjusting well or doesn't like it here. What would be a factual observation that you see? I recently see you alone a lot and I was wondering if you were okay. Okay, so I've seen you alone a lot recently, specifically in the cafeteria, and when we went to the, the mass, you sit alone, not with anybody else. That's a fact. I may not make the offer yet, all I'm just talking about is a fact. What else, what other fact pattern might I talk about? Possibly I could open up to them. But I'm talking about when we see something that we have to address, I may lead with the facts that I've seen. What else would be a fact? Yeah, that I've gotten word from a couple of your professors that you have missed two-thirds or a third of your classes over the past three weeks. What else? They have an impact. Yeah. When I came into your room to actually have a conversation with your roommate, I noticed that all of your bags were still packed and nothing was on the walls, nothing was in your drawers, everything was in suitcases. Yeah, we're friends on Facebook and I see some of your posts have really nothing positive to say. Let me quote one for you. <laughs> this place is awful, right? <laughs> Go ahead, another one? I noticed that you've been on the phone with a lot of people 
Yes. That I know that your roommate, and I have actually heard when I came in to have a conversation with you that you were on the phone for an hour with your parents. And that happens nightly. Yes. I, you on weekend life is really not a part. It seems like you go home every single weekend and it's a 12 hour ride. So you spend more time in the car than you spend here, right? So those are facts. And I can then, when I talk about this idea of stating the facts, then what I do is say to the person, tell me what's going on. Help me understand what's going on here. And I can do that with something as serious as me smelling marijuana under a door that I don't have to say, are you smoking up in here? Are you getting high? All I have to say is, I'm standing outside the room and I hear that there are four people outside. When I knocked on the door, I smelled strongly marijuana. I looked up at the ceiling and I see a smoke detector that's covered with a towel. And then I also see it's the middle of February. We have negative 13 degrees outside. All of your windows are open and you guys are wearing North Face jackets with full ski masks on, and the only part of your face is open is a mouth. Can I ask what's going on in here? <laughs> See, I'm not making an accusation. I'm letting them fill in the other side of it because all I have noticed is evidence and facts. And so when it comes to not putting person, now, would that person possibly be defensive? Absolutely. But one cannot say to me, you're making it unfair. Judgment or assessment. All I'm doing is letting you fill in those facts. Does this make sense? So that's when I lead. I lead with the microphone, and then I immediately hand it over to the microphone and say, let me hear what you have to say. Or what's your reaction? What are your thoughts? What's going on? Can you clarify this for me? And I will tell you, in more situations than not, when I've had to deal with difficult circumstances and have taught leaders to deal with difficult circumstances, this, these two steps are golden. The only thing that I will tell you is, stating the facts, the big caveat is make it concise. Please don't go in there and be like, all right, so let me just read the list. <laughs> I see you with a mask on, I see you, and it goes on, and this has happened for the fourth time. If you can give three facts or two facts, just to back it up so that you're not dominating the conversation. You can come across as very annoying if that fact pattern goes on forever. Does this make sense? Now, when I give them the microphone, guess what I have to do? Shut up. And I'll tell you, the, le the, the last thing that I want to cover with, because there may be defensiveness that comes here. So we talked about already the preparedness, right? We talked about how I can handle it. We talked about this idea of fact patterns. The next thing that I want you to be aware of is I want you to avoid having squirrel moments when it comes to when they're talking to you. What do I mean by squirrel moments? Let me share with you a quick clip. This idea of sharing the microphone is not this, shouting at each other or always talking at the same time. This is what I mean by squirrel moments. How many people here have ever seen the movie Up? Oh, seen it? Great. So you know Doug the dog? Oh, yeah. This is where we get introduced to Doug the dog and his squirrel moments. So folks, what, how many people have seen this before? All right, so you know what I mean by squirrel moments? Obviously, Doug does it, right? He's having this midstream conversation, or conversation in midstream, he goes, squirrel, right? What does that mean, that he's focusing on? Something else. We as human beings, while we don't chase squirrels, at least some of us don't, our minds go into squirrel moments that at that moment, while they're telling us their side, we go into squirrel mode. How many people know what I mean, that they go into squirrel mode? How many are there right now, be honest? Right? We think about other things. Yes? Can I have you prove, can I prove this to you right now that you do think about other things? Right now, here's what I'd like you to do. 
Um, I'm gonna have you pair up with somebody. Pair up with another person. It could be the same person you would just talk to. Pair up with that person right now. And I'm gonna ask the person who has a writing implement. So one of you may have a writing implement. If you don't have a writing implement, that's fine. But just pair up with somebody. Find a partner, please. Everybody have a writing, uh, writing implement? Okay, so if you have a writing implement, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like that partner with a writing implement to just volunteer, I'll be the guy that writes. And on a piece of paper somewhere, I just want you to write the word squirrel. So um, there's the word squirrel, in case you don't know how to spell it. It's, not, it's oftentimes misspelled. S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L. All right, so the person with the writing implement just wrote down the word squirrel, you're gonna turn to your partner, all right? And here's what I'd like your partner to do. So one person is gonna be the listener, that's the person with the squirrel sign. The other person is gonna be the speaker. Can I just have you make sure you know who's speaker and who's listener right now? I'll be the speaker, I'll you be the listener. All right. So speaker, here's what I'd like you to do. Speakers, can I have you right now be willing to talk about with a good deal of uh, detail what you did over Christmas break? Just talk about it freely, like high points, low points, what you loved about it, high point of the Christmas break. Please do that. Listeners, here's what I'd like you to do. Anytime your mind wanders, like wants to say something or respond, your job is just to be quiet. But in case you wanna say something or talk about what you did or there's something distracting or something that you're not even paying attention to because they're boring, just raise the squirrel sign. Just want you to do that. You're not gonna say anything. Right now, please begin the conversation. Ready, set, go. Folks, how many people know that you had some squirrels just in those couple of minute conversations? Raise your hand. We do this. I want you to be conscious of the types of squirrels you have in conversation because when they are holding the microphone, I have to resist putting squirrels in the mix. And here are the things that we oftentimes do that oftentimes make these conversations more difficult. We give advice or preach too quickly. You shouldn't feel that way. Steubenville is an open environment. You should feel welcome and loved. Like, I don't know if that helps me if I'm somebody who's having a very difficult time. Like, that doesn't necessarily help me to be like, you should feel loved. No, feel loved. Go find friends. It doesn't necessarily help. Argue with them. You, what I showed you before. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. Yes, you did. No, you didn't. Yes, you did. This is just about you listening to what they say, admonishing them. This isn't the time to admonish them, you know. Our house rules state you're not supposed to do that. And you will be kicked out. At this point, it's not my job to do that. I will in a little while. It's not about not being truthful. But at this point, they're holding the microphone. Assure them it's going to be OK. I know that um, you know, you're drinking even in class now <laughs> and bringing alcohol openly. In it's going to be OK. Don't worry about it. We'll get you involved with the 12-step program. That's not necessarily helpful. Or ask questions that have nothing to do with what they're saying. Three things that I want you to walk away with. If I have those conversations, there are P's that I gotta be, be mindful of. What's the P's? Prayer. Purpose. Proof. Partner and preview. Second thing, making sure that I shed light on those conversations. You have that in your handout in terms of what that stands for. The biggest thing is leading with facts and letting people hold the microphone. That's oftentimes 90% of your battle. I want to thank you very much for having me here today. Thanks so much. I wish you the best of luck. Enjoy the rest of the session. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.